You know, today we got uh, only about 50 verses to get through. And you know, in like one of those movies um, where like they build the tension and, and like something's downloading and you're watching it, is it going to get downloaded before the bad guy gets there? And, and you're like, I don't know. Well, that's how this week's felt with this sermon. So it's still downloading. We'll see what happens. So I need your help. So turn with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, as we get to see one of the most famous. So like if the Gettysburg Address or I, I Have a Dream speech are like in American, um, in, the, in the history of America, some of the most famous speeches. The, the I Am the Bread of Life speech, which we're going to read today is like in cosmic history, one of the most famous uh, speeches ever given, okay? So all we have to do is, and we got a little bit of a late start, all we have to do is figure it out in about 40 minutes. So are you ready? We're going to fly, and so we're going to ask to have to have the Holy Spirit, dear, dear God, help us uh, to understand what you're saying here. Now this is going to be extra hard because w- one of the things that we'll see is, is Jesus makes it weird. For all you Pete Holmes fans, Jesus makes it weird in this passage on purpose. And one of the best compliments I ever got about our church is somebody came to me, they'd been here for a couple years, and they'd really gotten connected, and like Amanda, they weren't a Christian before they came here, and, and they were tasting the gospel and seeing who this Jesus was, and they said to me, they said, Dave, uh, this is how I'd describe Sedaris, a little strange, but good. And I was like, that's, a, I, that's, that's what we're going for here. So I feel like it's a little strange, but good. Then we're on the right track. We've taken the, the way of Jesus, the ethos of Jesus, the person of Jesus, and, and we are expressing that to the world because what we'll see here is it's a little strange what Jesus has to say, but it's good. Uh, uh, several months ago, I showed uh, a sermon clip from Charlie Mackesy, who uh, is now an Academy Award uh, Winner, and he wrote a book called The Boy, I always get it wrong, the, the, the Boy, the Mole, the Fox, and the Horse, and it's a kid's book, but it's not a kid's book, and we've got one up in our prayer room, and you can go up there, we've got an experience set up for you, and it's beautiful, and they made it into a movie, and then it won uh, the Oscar for Best Short Film, and, and, and Charlie Mackesy, in another talk he does, uh, that some of you may have seen, uh, he tells this story about he was invited to this conference one time, and, and it was sort of a small band, a guitarist, and, uh, but a big audience, you know, like 5,000 people, and uh, it was a Christian event, uh, but there weren't all Christians there, and, and Charlie says that he was invited by uh, the lead musician to come on stage and just be a little percussion, kind of like Tom Mullins is up here giving us some percussion, but Charlie didn't have quite, <laughs> quite... I mean, if you haven't seen Tom's bag of tricks, you've got to take a look at it. This guy's got so many <laughs> percussion instruments, but all, uh, Charlie didn't have anything, and so he went down to the store, and the, the only shaker he could find at the store was a, a shaker in the shape of a banana. And so he had this banana shaker, and <laughs> so he's standing on stage for three days, three days conference, and, and he's standing, it's a, it's a pretty big room, uh, and he's doing the percussion. This is the kind of instrument I could play, with a banana shaker. And he's doing it, and, he's, and he's, he's fully engaged, and he's doing his work for the Lord, and he's very much, very much um, uh, thinking what he's doing is, is having a real impact. And then after the conference was older, this nice lady walks up to him and, and just thanks him and says, thanks for being up there all week. I mean, I could tell that you were giving it your all, and you were in it. And, and, and she said to him, she said, 
But um, I just got to ask, and some of my friends were wanting me to come ask you, it's like, what exactly are you doing on stage? <laughs> like, why are you shaking a banana? <laughs> and at, a, at that moment, he realized that he, he was not mic'd up, and there was, no, there was no way in this very big room that anybody could hear the banana shaker. So for three days, Charlie was just standing up there shaking a banana during the songs. And he, in his sermon, he, you can look it up. You can just Google Charlie Maxi banana shaker. It's really funny. He says, like, this is what Christianity is to a lot of people. A, a dude on stage shaking a banana. <laughs> but doing it so in, you know, you can tell he's connecting with the divine. And, and that's okay if Christianity's a little strange. But good. Charlie Maxi shook that banana. And it was good. It was just a bit strange. So uh, we're going to see that today, actually, um, every time we shake a banana uh, devoted to the Lord, that we are following in the way of Jesus because it's Jesus who teaches us how to make it weird. Like he purposefully does it. Why would he do that? Why, why doesn't he just want everyone to just easily come into his kingdom and, and follow him? Why, why does he have to make it weird? That's the big question we'll try to answer today. Hopefully, I'll get there. I'm so glad I got to share that story. Because I know not everybody will ever find out about the banana shaker. So, did I already tell you to turn to John chapter 6? If you don't have a Bible, it's a long passage, so it'd be a really good idea to read along with me. There's Bibles in front of you and the seat back in front of you. And if you turn to there, we're going to be on page 947 as we read this, 947. And in addition to making it weird, one of the things Jesus is doing, uh, if you haven't been with us, he fed 5,000 people miraculously. He just had just a few loaves, and he somehow turned those loaves into feeding five to 10,000 people. Um, And they wanted to make him king, but he ran away. Why did he run away? And then he told his disciples to cross the lake, the Lake of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, probably about a six-mile boat ride uh, without him. And then he showed up to them in the middle of the lake, walking on the water. And then he gets to the other side, and the people have followed him, and we'll read about that. But you've got to understand that Jesus cares about needs. He cares about hunger, physical hunger, but he cares about something far more. And, and we'll see that today. And so he makes it weird. You, you could say he's playing this strange game of poker. A crazy game of poker. And he ups the ante here. And what we're going to see, and I want you to watch it, is by the end, many people that were following him folded. It says, too rich for my blood. And they walk away. Why would he do that? Why does he up the ante? Why doesn't he keep them in the game? I don't know. But maybe I'll find out by hearing what he has to say. So you ready? 50 verses, so. Put your seatbelt on. Here we go. The next day, this is the day after the feeding and the day after the walking on the water, the crowd that had stayed on the other side of the sea where he'd fed the 5,000 saw that there was only one boat. They also saw that Jesus had not boarded the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone off alone. Now some other boats from Tiberias came near to that place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. 
<clears throat> Important word. The Greek word there is Eucharist, where the Lord had given thanks. Just, just underline it. John's reminding where the Lord had given thanks. When the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and they went to Capernaum looking for Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Who cares? I mean, it's sometime between yesterday when I saw you and today. They don't even know what questions to ask. So Jesus doesn't answer their question. But he did answer this, verse 26. Truly. And remember we said, anytime you see truly in John, there's two trulys. Amen, amen. Truly, truly. Verily, verily. This is important. Truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Don't work, Jesus said. For food that perishes, but work for food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man, he's referring to himself, the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. So Jesus is saying, I am the Son of Man. It's one of the titles he uses. And my signs that I'm performing are the seal of the Father's approval on me. So the people don't get it. What do they say? What can we do to perform the works of God, they ask? Jesus replied, this is the work of God. That you believe in the one he has sent. They still don't get it. Well, what sign then are you going to do so we may see and believe you, they asked. What are you going to perform, they asked. Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness just as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Remember last week or two weeks ago referring to this picture that Jesus seems to be reenacting of the people of God in the wilderness and God gave manna from heaven because they had no food to eat. And he splits the sea so that they can escape death and their enemies. Just as Jesus has command over the water we talked about last week. And so Jesus has really said, I am greater than Moses. I'm the son of man. He's given them signs, but they want more signs in order that they might believe. This is important. How many signs does it take? So Jesus said to them, verse 32, Truly, truly, I tell you, Moses didn't give you that bread from heaven. He corrects them. It's important to see this. This will be really important later. He corrects them. You've got it wrong. That wasn't Moses. Who gave you the bread? My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. He did it in the wilderness, and He's doing it now. Verse 33. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then Jesus said, or sorry, then they said to Jesus, Sir, give us this bread and give it to us always. Jesus told them, I am the bread of life. No one comes to me. No one who comes to me will ever hunger. And no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. 
Remember the woman at the well. That's what Jesus said to her. But as I told you, you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. Remember the importance of believing. That's the work that you must do, he said, to believe in the one God has sent. But you don't believe. Everyone the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but but should raise them up on the last day. Now, I could do a whole sermon on that line. It's beautiful. This promise that all who the Father gives the Son, he will draw to the Son, and the Son will not lose them. So all who are truly called by God and come to God and come to believe will not be lost. What a beautiful promise. This is the assurance of the saints. So I, I, wanna, I want you to just, just know that because I'm about to say some things that might seem like they're challenging that, but they're not challenging that. And Jesus is about to say some things that might seem like they're challenging that promise, but they're not. And we have to be able to distinguish the difference. Because there are some people that have come to him, right? And then we're going to see those people go. So wait, he just said, none who come to me I'll ever lose. So he must be talking about a deeper sense of coming to him, or a deeper sense of belief. But this is the promise. If you've truly believed in Jesus, if you've truly come to Him, if you've truly given your life to Him, He will never lose you. What a promise. I wish I could, I mean, maybe I'll come back and preach a whole sermon on that. It's so beautiful. I'll raise them up on the last day, He says. He's talking about the resurrection of all the saints. Okay, verse 40. Jesus continues, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Usually if, if Jesus says something twice, it's really important. Focus on the resurrection. We love that at Sedaris. Consider means in the Latin, with heavenly body. Think about life now with your heavenly, resurrected body in mind. Jesus seemed to like to remind us of that too. I'm going to raise you up on the last day. So, in, in the hard thing I'm about to say, setting them up, just remember it leads to eternal life if you can receive it and believe it, and that equals the resurrection of the body to live in the new heavens and the new earth, in my kingdom. Okay. Therefore, After Jesus said these things, the Jews started complaining about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Now, just a quick note. Now, we've been talking about the crowd, and now he talks about the Jews. And what we've been saying in John is the Jews represent sort of the spiritual authorities of the day. Those people who had some title and some power in, in the religious system of the Jews. So, it's the Jews that start complaining not necessarily the whole crowd, but the Jews, these people that they had looked to as their spiritual leaders, that start grumbling and complaining and 
Oh, these are, these are hard things that Jesus is saying. I can't believe he's saying this. Why, why are they so upset about that? We'll talk about it in a second. How could he say, I'm the bread of heaven? The Jews grumble and complain. They were saying, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I have come down from heaven? Like, I remember when he was born. What is he saying? He came from heaven. Jesus answered them, stop complaining. Stop grumbling. We mentioned it last week. Another allusion to the people in the wilderness who were grumbling against God. Why did you take us out of Egypt and out of slavery and now we're here in the desert with nothing to eat and nothing to drink? Same thing's happening. We've already forgotten what God has done for us and now we're complaining, we're grumbling among ourselves. Why are you doing that, Jesus said. Stop it. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Third time he's talked about the resurrection. It is written that the, uh, in the prophets... And here he quotes the Old Testament. And they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has listened to and learned from the Father comes to me, Jesus said. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. And he's saying, I have seen the Father because I am from the Father. And I am of the Father. I am the Word become flesh, John told us in chapter 1. I am God in the flesh. Me and the Father are one. And I have seen him, and I know him. And he's actually saying, you're being taught by God right now. Truly, I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Second time he said that. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread, third time, that came down from heaven. It's like the third or fourth time he's talking about coming down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus is about to make it weird. At that, the Jews argued among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Talking about cannibalism here? You would think at this point Jesus would explain what he's talking about. And no, no, don't worry. It'll become more clear later on, after the Last Supper, that what I'm talking about is the elements. The bread represents my body and the blood represents my blood. And that's what I'm talking about. And don't worry, it'll make more sense in a year or so. (laughs) Right? That's what I'd probably do because I don't like that they're thinking about, I'm talking about cannibalism. Jesus doesn't do that. And we have to ask, why? So, so if you're new to Christianity, just know, and we'll talk about this more in a second, just know that Jesus is okay leaving us in the dark for a time about things that seem really important. And he's going to leave his disciples, the, one who, the ones who don't flee, he's going to leave them in the dark about this whole eating my flesh thing for at least a year plus. And then at the Last Supper, the night Jesus was betrayed, when they're eating their final meal together, Jesus finally reveals it to them. Remember when I was talking about my flesh and my blood? And you've followed me all this way without me explaining that I was just talking about the symbolism of it. 
this is what I meant. Every time you gather, take bread. This is my body broken for you. Eat it as a way of remembering that I'm about to give my life for you on the cross. And, and then take this cup of wine, and every time you drink it, let it remind you that your sins are forgiven in my sacrifice on the cross. That This is a new covenant. And he tells him that. And we, we have, the, we have the, the, the privilege of knowing how the story ends. They didn't. So it is sort of strange. You've got to try to put yourself back in that moment where we don't know really what he's talking about. That it does seem like this got really weird. But yet he doesn't. He doesn't stop and explain. He allows them to wrestle and even come to false conclusions about maybe he's starting some cannibalistic cult. What's so weird? Why do we do that? Okay, so they argue, how can, how can we eat this man's flesh? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I tell you. Not, you don't understand. He says, truly, truly, I tell you. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Fourth time he said that. Because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats, he just keeps going. Like, stop, Jesus, stop with the, this is weird. Just stop. Oh, no, I got to keep going. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the manna your ancestors ate in the, in the desert. They died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. He said these things while he was teaching in a synagogue, a Jewish synagogue in Capernaum. Why'd you make it so weird, <laughs> Jesus? We were doing great. Just think, put yourself in the 12 disciples' shoes. We're doing great. The crowds are coming. They're even taking boats, chartering boats to come across the lake to hear. They're getting it, Jesus. They're, they're, they're learning uh, how great you are, just like we found how great you are. Why'd you go and make it so weird? Let's keep reading. Therefore, when many of the disciples, and that's, we'll see to be clear, not the 12 disciples, but there was more disciples than just the inner circle of the twelve. When many of his disciples heard this, they said, This teaching is hard. Who can accept it? I was thinking about Amanda's testimony. This teaching is hard. Who can accept this? When you first hear the gospel, this teaching is hard. Who can accept it? Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were complaining about this, asked them, does this offend you? Then what if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Back into heaven. The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. He's not talking about his own flesh. He's now just talking the flesh, just our natural self. Without spirit. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But, they are some, but there are some among you who do not believe. For Jesus knew 
John gives us a parenthetical reference. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and the one who would betray him. We know now that's Judas. He said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. From that moment, many of the disciples turned back and no longer accompanied Jesus. So Jesus said to the twelve, You don't want to go away too, do you? Because they also said this is a hard teaching. This is beautiful. Look at what Simon Peter says. Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? If not you, then who? You have the words of eternal life. You have come to believe, or sorry, we have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Where will we go? No one has life as you have life. And Jesus replied to them, Didn't I choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He was referring to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, one of the twelve, because he was going to betray him. So if you know the story of Jesus, one of Jesus' inner circle, the twelve, Judas, will in the end, after the Lord's Supper, go and sell his inheritance in the kingdom of God for 30 pieces of silver. After Jesus' death, Judas, scriptures tell us, commits suicide because he realizes what he's done. And John sort of fast-forwards us because most of the people John were writing about, they knew this part of the story. So now we have it. And that'll become important in just a second. So I'd like to try to do a few things with this text. The first, as I've already said, try to understand why he purposefully makes it weird. What is he doing? What is he revealing to us here that we didn't already know? The second thing is I want to explain to you how Jesus is really calling himself the new Passover lamb. That's actually what he's doing by saying you have to eat my flesh. And the third thing is, um, I want to talk about this description Jesus gives of this higher union that is necessary to experience eternal life. That's really what he's saying. He's like, it's not going to be the same, it can't be the same as it is now. Just me being me and giving you bread. Something else has to happen in our relationship for you to experience eternal life and be raised up on the last day with me. Okay? And I'm actually going to attack those in reverse order. So let's start with this higher union. Jesus is saying, guys, it's been great to this point. We've seen some signs. We've seen some miracles. I've revealed who I am to you. I've given you some teaching. But I need to tell you, we need to have a higher union if we are going to live forever together. Union with Christ is necessary. Now, God and his people had always had a type of relationship, particularly seen in the Old Testament, but, but Jesus came not just to continue that same relationship, but to give us a new kind of relationship. And if you don't understand that, you'll never understand why Jesus had to come from heaven. And clearly, he says, I came from heaven so many times to tell them, you don't know why I had to come from heaven. And let me explain it to you. So we need a different level of union if we are going to coexist forever in my kingdom. 
And this, this union can be spoken of only through this strange metaphor of eating my flesh and drinking my blood. Right? Because like, if, if <laughs> again, he makes it weird on purpose because he's like, the disciples are following him and they're with him and they're for him. But he's saying, no, we got to be connected in a different way. You need to ingest me. Weird. But we get that. If you were to eat somebody, you'd be connected and united to them in a way you never were before. Right? Like, as simple as that. Like, this is a different kind of union, right? Whether we understand exactly how this happens, or like, we get that's different. Okay, so look here at verse 56 with me. Verse 656 says this. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. So there is this analogy that only can really be understood by the process of eating and eating leading to life, right? That's why Jesus has to go here. He's like, you must be in me in a way in which me being in you gives you actual life. Just like when you eat bread, it gives you energy and life. And they don't know the science of, that we know now. But I do think Jesus would not be an Atkins diet kind of guy. It's like, we've got to have the bread. You must eat my flesh. You must remain in me and I in you at such an intimate level if I'm going to give you life in the same way the Father gives me life because I and the Father are one. We're not two separate gods. We're one God and three persons. And in that same way, you must unite with me in such a deep level that I am in you and you are in me. See that? That's the way to eternal life. Not just by doing a couple of good things, or a lot of good things. Not just by being a nice person. But you must actually have Jesus in you as he is in the Father. Okay. So how does this happen? Well, I told you to keep marking all the times Jesus said, I came from heaven, sent by God. I came down. The Father gives me, the Father draws me, all who come to me, I will not lose. So the first thing I want you to see, how does this happen? Who initiates? God. That is so important. This is not a process that you can initiate on your own. This is a process that God has already initiated and is initiating right now. You're not in this room by accident. He's drawing you to him. But you will have a choice. I'll explain that choice in a second. So God does all of the work. He sent Jesus. Jesus has willingly come because it's the will of the Father. The Father is drawing people to the Son, and the Son says, I will not lose them. It's always God's initiative. And then if we eat and, and it digest the Son, I'm talking in spiritual sense here, just to be clear. We can have relationship with God to such an extent that we are now saved from our sin 
and can live in close proximity and relationship to God forever. That's the gospel. Because why? Jesus is the heavenly lamb. So in the Old Testament, God spent hundreds of years setting up the scene so that when Jesus came and said these words, we'd know what he's talking about. But for most of us, we don't know our Old Testament very well, and so we miss it. So when he says, eat my flesh, he's, he's actually talking about the Passover. And Jen and my cohort helped me see this this week, so I want to give her some credit. Look, go all the way back to the very beginning of chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 1 sets the scene for everything that comes after. The feeding the five houses and the walking on water and then this speech. And John reminds us a really important time marker. He says this, After this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee. A huge crowd was following him because they'd seen the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. And he went up a mountain and he sat down with his disciples. Verse 4, Now the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. Why does John bring that up? I mean, it's true, it was near, but it wasn't happening right now. Why does he bring it up? Because he's, he's tipping us off that everything Jesus is about to do is a reenactment of what God did for the people of Israel through the Exodus, including this all-important salvation from death and their sin, which is the Passover, the most important festival for the Jewish people. And at that, at that, uh, in the Exodus, after the ten plagues, God instructed his people to kill a lamb and sprinkle the lamb's blood over their doorpost and then cook the lamb and eat the lamb. And the promise was, when I bring the tenth plague, which is the death of the firstborn of the Egyptians, the angel of death will pass over your house because the blood of the lamb marks your house, seals your house. And all of the religion of the Jewish people that came after, that was the centering moment of God's atoning, delivering, loving work for his people. And Jesus is saying, I'm the new lamb. This is the new covenant in my blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup, whoever eats this lamb and marks their house with this blood will be saved. And I will eat with them again in my new kingdom after I've risen all the saints to life. That's huge. And he says it in such a mysterious way. And you wonder, why can't he just clarify that? We'll talk about that in just a sec. But you need to see that that's what's happening. He's talking about this deeper kind of union between God and humanity that can only happen through the sacrificial blood and flesh of the Lamb. And he's saying, I am that flesh. And only later do we see his body crucified, broken, given, and his blood spilled for his people. And I'm sure at that moment, all of the disciples who had stayed with him said, Oh, that's what it's all been about. But we can say now, that's what it's all been about. So if you eat the true, the higher, the ultimate Passover lamb that God has always been preparing for the world, 
If you eat that, you can have life in the Father. So, that's that higher union with Christ. Now, how do you, in a sense, eat the body of Jesus? And, and, and church history is actually filled with wars and debates about what is the body and the blood of Jesus and what's happening. Maybe you grew up in a Catholic tradition where they would actually say in some spiritual sense it becomes the flesh of Jesus. And probably because of passages like this where it seems clear. I don't agree with that. I think that's missing what Jesus is trying to do and say here. But I think the rest of what he says helps us clarify the way in which we actually eat the flesh. This, this sacrament is important. That's why we do it every week. But it's actually representing something more important that Jesus talks about here. So what are, what is the eating of the flesh and the drinking of the blood? Like, what is it? Jesus said it early on. Did you see it? He, he actually made it clear before he got weird. Thank you. We only see it now. What did he say? Verse 26, truly, truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw signs, but because you ate loaves that were filled. He says, don't work for the food that perishes, but work for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. What can we do to perform the works of God, they ask? Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. And if you do, you'll have eternal life, he says. And then he goes on to say, and you've got to eat the flesh. So what we have to see is eating the flesh and doing the work are the same thing. Because they both lead to eternal life. There's not two ways to eternal life. One is cannibalism and one is believing. <laughs> see, that's not what it is. They're the same thing. So eating the flesh, when you come to the table and you eat, it's an act of what? Belief. That's what it is. So this is the work of God, that you believe so it's not the work of God to feed the hungry, even though Jesus did that. It's not the work of God to walk on the water, even though Jesus did that. It's not the work of God to heal the sick. Not like the, the work. Those are works of God. Those are good works that God will send us to do. But the work of God that saves you is to believe. So in one, in one sense, you know, we always talk about Christianity is not a works-based religion. You cannot work your way to God. That's true because most people think of working their way to God about doing good, good works or good deeds. You do work your way to eternal life in one way. Believing in the one God sent. That's the one work you have to do. So you do not receive the reward of eternal life without doing the work of believing in the one he sent, which is to eat his flesh and drink his blood which is, of course, symbolic for belief. So, you see, it's all about faith. We are saved by faith, not works, but it is the one work we must do. There's no salvation apart from the work of believing in Jesus. Jesus makes that so clear right there, doesn't he? That is the work. So, so how does that work in real life? Okay, this is where I got so excited this week. So, belief comes by, I'm going to put them together, eating the words of God. Eating the words of God. Who is the Word? John said it in chapter 1. The Word became flesh. So eating the message of God. T 
taking it in, digesting it. Why do I think that's so true? Look at verse 63, 663. Peter, in his great response to what God, Jesus has invited him, are you going to stay? What does Peter say? Verse 68. Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. See, Peter gets it. You have the words of eternal life. If we eat any other words, we won't have eternal life. You see that? Jesus is the Word, and the Word leads to what? Life. Look at verse 63. 63 says this. This is Jesus speaking. The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh does not help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. So the Spirit gives life. Jesus says the Spirit are the words that I have spoken to you. Peter says, where else are we going to get the words of eternal life? And Jesus has already said, you must believe and take my word into yourself if you want to be in my kingdom. You see it? Man, I got ex- you could tell how excited I got that week. I was like, this helps me understand what faith in Jesus means. So sometimes Jesus gives us words purposefully, like he does in this speech, that are hard to digest. Like just on face value, you're like, that's hard to trust you <laughs> when you say that. But he does it, I think, in part. This is also why he speaks in parables, he'll say. In part, so that he can reveal who is truly trusting him versus just the things he does. Do you trust me and my word, or do you just trust the effects of my word? The loaves, the walking on water, the calming the storm, the healing the sick. What do you trust, me or just the effects of me? When you bet your life on Jesus, at his word, Jesus says, you will be saved. Now, the beautiful thing, as we've already said, more clarity, more explanation will come as you spend time with Jesus. So if you're here and you're like, this trusting, taking him at his word seems so difficult. Well, you, it, just know As you go, some of the things that seem so difficult to understand become more clear. Now, some of the things that are so difficult to understand don't come to full clarity because it's always salvation by faith. It's always a relationship by faith. You won't fully understand, but you will gain more understanding, just like the disciples did at the Last Supper, just like the disciples did after he died and rose again. It all started to come clear, and it will come more clear to you But the choice you have is, do I want to take him at his word and trust him and digest the word? Or do I want to trust myself and just take the effects of Jesus, his community, his goodness that he gives to the whole world? Okay. So, um, this is the mark. This is the mark of being a child of God. Remember Jesus said, I have the Father's seal on me. So you might ask, what's the seal on me 
that I know that I truly believe. Like there's been a lot of people in history who have eaten the bread and drinking the cup that do not truly believe. So how do I know? Because if I know, Jesus says he'll never lose me. But how do I know if I've truly believed? That's a good question to ask yourself. This is, this is how you know. The seal or the mark of ownership of God on, on his children, on true believers, is this very thing. That you take down the words of God into yourself and you do not vomit them up. What? The mark of the seal is that I can take in the words of God and I don't vomit them up. If the words of God give you life now, you can be assured they'll give you life forever. Because now we see as through a dim mirror, a foggy mirror, we can't really see. Then we'll see in fullness what God has done. So if you can take in the words of God, even though you can't quite understand what he's talking about all the time, and trust and follow him at his word, you can be sure that you have the seal or the mark of God the Father. I, um, my younger sister Kaylee married a guy who comes from a family uh, from New Mexico. And after they got engaged, they invited all of my family over to their house, and they put me through a test. They put me through a test. They're a big hot sauce family. So they took a look at me. They kind of looked sideways. They looked, they say, this guy doesn't look like he can handle it. I could see it in their eye. And they were gracious about it. They said, you know, Dave, you don't have to try this ghost pepper sauce. I mean, I can tell you're not from around New Mexico. I said, guys, I want to be a part of this family. Give it to me. So they said, well, listen, here, like, we can't be responsible for what happens next. I think I had to sign a waiver. And they put a, they say, oh, you can just, you can take maybe like a dot. And they put a dot of this ghost pepper sauce. And I could just see them all kind of, they were kind of scared. I said, guys, don't worry about this. <laughs> I don't think I said this out loud, but I was thinking in my heart, God is with me. God is with me. <laughs> and, I ate, and I ate the ghost pepper sauce. And it was like the strangest, I still to this day don't know exactly how it happened. But I chewed it, I swallowed it, and I only sweat a little bit. I don't know how it happened. I think God was telling me that day, you're, you're a part of this family. <laughs> and I think they even wondered, like, let's give it a couple minutes. And they kind of just stood there and watched. And they were, it was kind of a weird migration pattern. They were kind of staying away from me just in case the vomit happened in like a couple minutes, and it didn't. And I was able to take in the hot sauce, digest it, and move on with my day. And I got so much props, <laughs> I think, in that family that day, because they didn't think I could do it. I think that's what Jesus is doing here. He's trying to separate those who are following him for the effects, the bread, 
the miracles, the healing from those who truly want him and to be his followers and his true disciples. And so he gives them some hot sauce. And he says, take it down. Let's see what happens next. And many walked away. Hebrews 6, 4-6 gives us a warning about this. Let's throw it on the screen here, Phil. There's this amazing warning, and I say it's an amazing warning because God wants us to know that this happens still today. He says this, For it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then, and then, have fallen away. It's impossible, he's saying, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God. So this is a letter written to the church, so after Jesus' death and resurrection, pretty much portraying the same thing that Jesus is portraying through this speech that divides his disciples. He's saying, there are types of people who come into the church, who taste the goodness of God, they even experience the Holy Spirit, the peace that comes with that. They get all the life out of the Word of God, but then they vomit it out. They turn back to themselves, and, it's, and he's saying, it's like crucifying Jesus again. These are severe words. And we should take warning. We like the effects of Jesus, but Jesus says, stop coming to me for the effects and see what I'm giving you as a sign of my divinity so that you can believe in me and trust my word, take my word as it is, and stop questioning my word. Do you question the Word of God? Do you think you know better than God? Do you come and say, did God really say this if He's actually said it? Be warned! For real, be warned! You're crucifying again the Son of God. Doesn't mean you have to understand why He said what He said. It doesn't mean that your understanding of it won't evolve over time and you'll have a clear picture. But to take the Word of God, take it in, taste it, see it's good, and then at some point in your life, vomit it out and say, those aren't gods, is like crucifying Jesus again on the cross. Take it very serious. The crowd can't get past their own selfish ignorance. What work must we do? Jesus says, no work. I've done the work. God sent me. I'm here. I'm doing all the work. I will do all the work. I've died on the cross for your sin. God's raised me. I've sent my spirit. It's there. Take me at my word. That's what it means to be a Christian. To ingest and digest the word of God and to not throw it up. We are living in an age, we are living at a time when people who have walked with God and been faithful to God are now throwing up the Word of God as if now they're the ones that have figured out those aren't God's words. Be warned. This was true 2,000 years ago. This was true while Jesus was standing in front of them making thousands and thousands of dinners out of fr fresh air. We have to be careful. 
You digest Jesus' work, not your own work. So we see three examples of tasting in this passage, and I want to leave you with that. Three examples. And I want you to think, where am I in these three? And I want to be clear, we've all been one of the three at some point. God's grace is way greater than my grace. Don't worry. He's drawing you to himself. If you're here this morning, he's wanting you to be here and to hear this so that you can trust him more. But we've got to understand there's three ways to take in what you're hearing and then live it out. So the first is the positive example. We have Peter. What does he do? Jesus says, you want to be like them? You want to go? He says, where, I'm not, where am I going to go? <laughs> you know, I got nowhere to go. You've got the words of eternal life. This is an example of tasting and digesting. Tasting and digesting. And of course, Peter becomes the one who God, Jesus famously says, I'm going to build my church on you. And, G, and, and Peter becomes sort of the lead leader in the first church in Jerusalem. What an honor he's given because he's tasted these words that are weird and hard to understand and he's trusted Jesus even though they're still hard and he doesn't have the full explanation. He's waiting for the mystery to unfold. He's trusting in Jesus, not just the effects. And he will get that aha moment at the Last Supper. And even then, he struggles to believe it. So this is not saying Peter never struggled to believe it. It's just saying he kept following Jesus even though he was struggling to believe it. He's trusting him at his word. The second is the lukewarm crowd. The lukewarm crowd. What do they do? They taste, and they've been tasting since he created the bread and the fish, but then they very quickly spit it out. This is like what my son Owen does with all vegetables and fruit. As soon as it's in, as soon as it's out. It's like immediate, immediate. And, and this is sort of that lukewarmness, you know, kind of positive on Jesus until Jesus gets weird. And Jesus sort of antes up, calls the bluff. And then they're, they're out. A lot of people over the history of the church that have been like this. And over the people of Israel. So always the people of God, there's people like this. And so I want to take you real quick to Revelation 3, 15 to 19. Revelation is the last book of the Bible where, where uh, God gives the Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John, a vision of the future. And um, he's writing to seven churches, and, and he writes to one church that is a church full of the lukewarm crowd. And this is what Jesus says. You may have heard it before. Jesus, write, or Jesus says this. This is John quoting the vision of Jesus saying this. I know your works. Sound familiar? I know them. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either... I I prefer is what he's saying, that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Guess what the Greek word for spit out is? Vomit. I will vomit you out of my mouth. So the metaphor is flipped. Jesus says I'll lose none of those who are... The Father gives me her truly mine, but those who are lukewarm, I will vomit them out of my mouth. Again, an intense warning that we have to take serious. And then there's the third. This is Judas. Jesus, or John, brings him up on purpose. We have to wrestle with it. Who does Judas represent? He represents, because remember, it says the twelve stuck with him. Jesus turns to the twelve. Are you guys going to leave too? And the 12 say, 
we're here. And Judas stays with Jesus to the bitter end. What is Ju- Judas risks his life for Jesus. Judas faithfully proclaims. He's, he's some of the ones sent out to share the gospel. So he's evangelizing, he's sharing, he's faithful, he even risks his life for Jesus. But in the end, he never could fully digest the word of God. He couldn't do it. So he's an example of somebody that's tasting and then holding it in for a long while. Think there's people like this? These are the people who are faithful church attenders. They serve. They care for the the poor and the oppressed. They might even risk their own life for the gospel. But at some point, there's something that Jesus has said that's just too much for them. And they say, I can't do it. And they've been holding it in for a long while. Not chewing, maybe. Or maybe chewing. Maybe even getting almost all the way to digestion. But at some point, they vomit it up. Too much. And this doesn't mean that there were people that were saved, and now they're not saved. Because all who come to the Son, the Son will never cast out. These are people who have tasted of the goodness of God, tasted of the words of Jesus, and only partly digested. And at some point, they vomited out. And Jesus would say to them, you never truly believed. And therefore, you miss out on my kingdom and eternal life. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood will be raised up on the last day. These are hard words. Why does it have to be this way? Why couldn't it be another way? Why isn't there a second way? I don't know. But Jesus has told us very clearly, if you want life and life to the full, both now and forever, you must eat my body and drink my blood. Let's pray.